0: So, as I was getting ready this week to teach, um, I, water splashed up on my nose. I was uh, thinking about and reflecting on uh, my last four years of marriage. My wife, Taylor, is in the back, she's our campus coordinator. Um, yeah, she's pretty awesome. Um, But I was just reflecting on our four years of marriage, Valentine's Day, you know, all of that, and was thinking back to uh, when we first got married, and what a culture shock that was for me. Um, I, not living with a girl, I have three sisters and a mom that I grew up with, and so living with a girl was nothing new, but... Uh, sharing space with someone was somewhat new to me. I was privileged enough growing up to have my own room that I could retreat from my three sisters into. Uh, And I didn't do the traditional college thing. I never lived in a dorm room with a roommate in what is essentially a closet. Uh, So I didn't have that experience either, thank goodness. Uh, And When, before Taylor and I got married, I lived alone for a while, which was awesome. Have any of you ever lived alone? It rocks. Your own space, your own schedule, your own bed and refrigerator and all of that. But then something happened. I got married and Taylor moved in, and that was also awesome, but I had half the amount of bed space. There was all this other stuff in my drawers all of a sudden. And just everything was cut in half, effectively, it felt like. But there's also so much joy in living with someone, right? And getting, you get to learn someone in a whole new way when you live closely with them. There's this really special thing that happens as we live in close proximity with people at home and are in relationship with them. And this is one of the joys of marriage. We get to see, I get to see and learn so much more about Taylor now, living with her than I did before. And I get to see the best of Taylor and she gets to see the worst of me. That's true, that's where I was going. She gets to see the worst of me. And that's kind of how it goes, right? We get to see the best and the worst of the people that we live and share space with. And so today we're gonna to be talking about relationships relationships at home. We're in the middle of this teaching series that has we've been calling My House Your Home, which is all about our home and curating a space that we live in that is welcoming to the presence of God. We believe that your home can become a sanctuary where the spirit of God just lives and dwells and moves freely in your midst. That your home can go from places of anxiety or temptation or patterns of sin to places where you feel the most free and alive in Christ. Talking about our homes, that we believe our homes can be places where heaven and earth collide, where they touch, that the kingdom of heaven can come on earth as it is in heaven in your home, in your home as it is in heaven. Does that sound good to anyone? Yeah, does anyone want more of heaven in their home life? Yeah, Yeah. so that's what we are talking about through this teaching series. So the last two weeks, we talked about prayer and worship, and then we talked about Bible. These two practices, how do we do them at home? And these two practices are a bit more inward focused. It's really easy with prayer and worship and scripture, just be like, yeah, me and Jesus. It's awesome. Just us alone. And now we're going from that inward and stepping out into relationships, from this inward look to more of this outward look at our relationships at home, which we will continue on into next week as well. And so as we hop into this conversation, I want to give a quick preface, or really three prefaces under one real quick, all right? So this conversation— about relationships at home, just due to its very nature, will kind of be circulating around families, family dynamics, and family life, husband, wife, child, that sort of thing. We'll talk about that a lot this morning, but I want you to know that this conversation is for everyone in the room. This is not just a conversation for our families in the back. This is for all of us. And you will see that the further we get into this teaching, the more you will see how this actually relates to all of us. Second, a lot of you guys are single and dating or engaged or looking to be married. And the best time to learn about marriage is before you're married. So, and the best time to learn about having kids or About raising kids is before you have kids. It's always great and wise to like learn ahead of where you are. So take that with you as well. If you are not yet in that season of life, you very well may be one day. And so here's some wisdom for you, hopefully. Um, And third, in no way this morning am I saying that the Christian ideal life is to be married. I am not saying that to experience the fullness of life in Christ, you need to be married. Do not hear me saying that at any point this morning. Paul actually argues quite the opposite in one of his letters to the church in Corinth. He says, hey, I wish more people weren't married because you can experience so much more of Christ because you're not distracted. Um, But he also says, he says, singleness and marriage are both gifts from God and accept them and just really lean into them in whatever season you are in. And so that, there's our three prefaces, all right? You guys ready now to move on into the actual teaching? Cool. All right, um, since we don't have slides, if you do have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to start this morning. I'll let you guys turn there as I give a little context. So Ephesians was this letter written by this guy named Paul. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and it's attributed to being written to the church in this city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey where Paul had planted a church, and Ephesus was this big port city, really the first time that there had been a major port city in history. It's the first time we have a city that's a big melting pot of different cultures and languages and religions, and all these things kind of coexisting in one place, something we're very used to now, but this was kind of the first time that had really happened in history, but it's also as a port city, a place where things come in and spread throughout the world. And so this letter that Paul's writing to the Ephesians, scholars believe, due to several different things, is not simply just a church, or a letter to the church in Ephesus, but was written to be circulated among many churches. It's a word to the church at large, all right, which we are a part of as the church. So Ephesians also has this structure of like two halves, The first half, chapters one through three, are uh, really focused on Paul talking about this revelation of the mystery of Christ and the church. Paul speaking to that we are all one in Christ. We are all members of Christ's body, of which he is the head. Christ is the groom of the church, and we, the church, are his bride. Paul is speaking to, he talks about that Christ is the cornerstone of the church, of which we are all like little stones in this building, but Christ is the cornerstone that gives direction and orientation to the church. And so then the second half of Ephesians is simply, how do we live in light of the first half? It's a lot more practical. How do we live in a new way of life as members of the body of Christ? And so that's where we are in the second half of Ephesians, getting some instruction from Paul. Sound good? You guys? All right. All right. So Ephesians chapter 21. I just spilled some water on myself. Yes, I did. That's what that awkward thing was. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I had a slide that was like underlined on the slide, that's really important. Remember that through this whole teaching. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. her husband. All right. I know that was a big block of text, um, but we're going to dive into it. All right. So another deep breath. I had you take one in the middle there. All right. First, as we hop in, context is everything here in Ephesians chapter 5 both historical context of the time and place to which Paul is writing, as well as textual context, meaning what Paul is saying within the bigger picture of Ephesians, which we've already kind of spoken to. But on the historical side, Paul is writing out a new kingdom of God household code. There's this way of writing that was common in the Roman empire of the head of a household or the patriarch being addressed on how to run and order his household. And Paul is giving us a new kingdom of God household code here in Ephesians five. He continues on past what I read, speaking to children and fathers and servants and masters. He addresses the whole Roman household. And what Paul is doing here is giving us that new kingdom household code. And there's some things about it that would be very eye-catching and almost, no, not almost, be scandalous as a Roman citizen about what Paul is doing here. Because one, a normal household code would only address the patriarch. He's the only person worth addressing in the household. But here, Paul addresses not only the patriarch, not only the husband, but the wife, not only the father, but the children, and not only the master, but the servants, giving them dignity, dignifying the entire household. But beyond that, Paul actually places them in a place of honor, speaking to them before he speaks to the patriarch, speaking to the wives first, honoring them, dignifying them, speaking to children first, honoring, dignifying them. So this is what Paul is doing here. He's subverting some of the Roman cultural social order. The church in Paul's day was scandalous to the society that it was in. You'd come into a church gathering and The normal social hierarchy has been tossed out the window of sorts. People are all on equal ground under Christ. this is what Paul is giving vision to. And to the outside looking in at the church of the first century, this would have been baffling, scandalous, subversive, and almost look like anarchy. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is not a social revolutionary and he's not a social conformist either he's doing something totally different paul is what tim mackey calls an apocalyptic visionary or simply saying he's giving a heavenly perspective he's paul is thinking on a completely different plane than we are when we typically come to this text or than most people operate in. Paul is not operating on social progressivism versus social conservatism. Paul is speaking about the kingdom of God and a new way of seeing the household and all relationships. That's what Paul is doing here. He's painting a picture for the church in Ephesus and the church beyond, and he's using the household He's using familial relationships as the medium of painting that picture. Yes, he is giving real instruction to real people, but he's also doing something so much more. In order to see the full picture of what Paul is doing here, I think we need to go back and claim a little bit of a biblical view of the family to pick up some pieces. So we're going to go back to the beginning, quite literally, to Genesis chapter 2 and work through some things about how God has designed the family to work. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God, he's been creating, he's been naming, this is good, this is good, this is good. He makes Adam the solo man and he sees that he's alone and the first thing that God says is not good is a man alone. Can I get an amen? (laughs) All right. So he sees that and he says, this isn't good. He needs a helper. And from Adam, he creates Eve, he creates woman and gives Adam a helper. Now, it's kind of sad that we live in a culture where you hear the word helper and you might be like a little offended or like taken back, like as if helper is a derogatory term or a lesser role within the order of the family. But I assure you, helper in scripture is a huge compliment Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send a helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit. This word helper here in Genesis 2 is this Hebrew word, ezer. And an ezer is actually warrior language. Imagine yourself, close your eyes, imagine yourself out on a field of battle sword drawn, think like Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or something, sword drawn, surrounded by enemies, the orcs are all around, and one of your comrades comes up and gets back to back with you, defends you from behind. That is an easer. It's someone who comes behind and fights back to back with you in battle. The word easer carries with it the connotations of Protector defender, and redeemer. Taylor for sure is my easer. She for sure comes behind me and protects me from all sorts of things that I probably don't even know about. She is helping me not make stupid decisions pretty much every day. She is my help. This word easer, David uses to describe God dozens of times in the Psalms. He says, God is my help. God is my easer. When I'm surrounded by enemies, he's right there with me. God is my help. So this is not a subservient or inferior role. Genesis 1:27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So he created both male and female, different and distinct, but equal. Both made in the image of God, in reflecting his character in different ways. They're kind of like, there's not a one and a two. It's more of a yin and yang situation of completing each other and helping each other. In Paul in Ephesians, he speaks of the husband as the head of the household. And that's not an authoritative word. The word used there is kephale, which does mean the literal head of a body. But it carries with it this idea of source or origin point. Think like headwaters of a stream. That is what a kephale is. And he uses this word to describe Christ. He uses this word to describe Jesus and his role with the body. Jesus is the origin of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church that gives orientation and direction. You would lay a cornerstone first because it gives structure to the rest of the building. It tells us where we're going. And so headship is this reflection of Christ that the husband carries. It gives direction, it leads, it orients, and it gives provision. In Greek thought, the head was the source of nourishment to the body, as Christ is to the church. And so the husband is to the household. And if Jesus is the picture of headship, Jesus' leadership style is that of the husband, one of walking in love, one of serving the people whom he walks with, one of kneeling down, taking the place of a servant and washing feet, one of obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. The picture of headship that Paul is operating with is a call to lay down your life, to look for the goodwill of those in your family and to place them ahead of yourself. And Paul continues that theme of subverting Roman culture throughout the rest of this household code into chapter six. And are you guys beginning to see the picture that Paul is painting here? Are you guys seeing it? Yeah? Paul is expanding that verse 21. He's giving us an image of the love of Christ lived out through radical submission in our relationships at home and beyond. So why is he using the household? Why is he using the home, our family, to paint this picture? Home is the primary place where we learn to live out The gospel. Walking in love, serving others, submitting ourselves to them. That word submit literally just means to place ourselves beneath them. It's a word of just saying, hey, Taylor, hey, Marlo, your needs are more important than mine, and I'm going to look to meet your needs. Paul is an apocalyptic visionary speaking into what the kingdom of God household looks like and giving us a new framework, a new way of seeing all relationships, every relational category. And he's using the home to paint this picture, family, husband, wife, child, Parent, and that's only the beginning. It continues from there, roommate, coworker, friend, and on down the relational list. Because we we don't just go out and it's not just a face that we put on when we come in here to church, or at least it shouldn't be or when we're with our Christian friends, or when we're serving people in some capacity. But to walk in love is how we are to live in our most intimate relationships. Home, as I mentioned earlier, often sees the worst of us, but it also needs to see the best of us. It's this radical call that Paul is giving us, of mutual submission in every relational category. Why is that important? Eugene Peterson once said, God is only God relationally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God that we serve is in his very essence relational and he created us for relationship. And so a faith in a God that is in his nature relational is not one that we can live out in isolation or on our own, but it has to be lived out and worked out in relationship. This is what Paul is speaking to. And it first begins at home. It doesn't hit any closer to home than at home. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. Did you guys know that? That we're all called to be ministers? Not just the people who stand up here with microphones or on church staff, but the entire body of Christ is called to be ministers. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says, and this is why God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, which is the church, for the work of ministry. It's all of our job to be ministers, and that begins at home. That word minister that we have, it comes from the Latin minister. It's a Latin word, and in the root of that is the word minus, which just means less. And the word servant in Latin literally means, or the word, did I say servant? The word minister in Latin literally means servant. This is our call. Not, the whole tr- not just church staff, but the whole church. Ministry is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that ministry flows out of our relationship with Christ from abiding in him, but then it has to come out into our relationships. It comes from existing in and receiving first Christ's ministry to us the way that he has served us, and then we go and do likewise out of reverence and love for Jesus. Ministry comes from a place of just living in that love of Christ, being present to him, and being present to others. And that begins at home. Husbands and wives here, there's a reason I kind of started and spent some time talking about uh, the biblical view of the family because we're called to be co ministers together. But also, before we're co ministers together, we are ministers to each other first. We submit ourselves to each other first. We place ourselves beneath each other. We look to the other's needs ahead of our own. And we serve the other as if they were Christ. Guys, if we cannot minister to our spouses or to the people we live with, we are really missing the heart of Jesus and the call of his followers. If we cannot love as Christ loves the people we live with, if we cannot show grace as Christ has shown us grace to our husband, if we cannot forgive as Christ has forgiven us to our wives, if we cannot encourage our children the way that Christ encourages us, if we cannot pray for and intercede for our roommates the way that Jesus intercedes for us, we're missing it. And Paul uses the home to paint this picture Because when our home looks like that, it becomes a visible picture of the gospel reality to the world around us. Our home, in which the gospel is lived out, becomes a beacon of hope and light out into a world of darkness. We make the gospel a visible, tangible reality of the invisible reality, which is Christ and his love for us that we can't see anymore but who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. For Paul, home is mission field number one. I'm going to say that again. For Paul, our homes are mission field number one. This is our first place we look to minister to others as Josh and I were preparing for this teaching, um, we were talking, and he shared a story of one of our fathers here, and was just kind of bragging on him, and he was speaking of, you know, he had just had a baby, he was speaking with Josh, just had a baby, working full-time hours, and just exhausted, because that's what happens when you have a baby and you work full-time hours, just that's all you've got. And he was speaking with Josh, and he's like, you know, I've come to realize that if my ministry right now is only to my wife and discipling my child, that's enough in this season. And we just say, yes, like parents, it takes a lot. And in seasons, we need to make sure that our ministry is first at home and that is first priority because home is God's first priority. We need to learn to live out the gospel within the four walls of our home. Otherwise, any other ministry that we try to step out and go do is in vain. Say that again. <laughs> well, I'll say it again. We need to learn to minister in the four walls of our home because any other ministry we go out to do stands on our ministry at home. Our ministry at home is the... It gives credibility to any other ministry. I think the pastor's kids get this reputation. um, And from what I've heard, oftentimes that reputation that pastor's kids have is because they hear one thing from their parents in this context and see something different at home. Therefore, that ministry has no credibility in the eyes of that child. We have to be ministers to our families in our homes. Um, let me I lost where I am in my notes. Our homes can become wellsprings of ministry, where if we begin to minister in our homes, it will bubble up and flow out of our front doors and onto the streets, but it has to begin at home. A clinical psychologist has this idea that you cannot change the world if you can't clean your room. You can't step out and go and do powerful things if you don't have your house in order. And I think that's true. Like you can't go out and minister if you can't minister to the people you live with and are close with. But also beyond that, within the gospel context, our homes also become that beacon of hope that I mentioned, this picture of the love of Christ. It goes beyond just getting ourselves in order, but actually becomes a tool for the gospel to be proclaimed. Last week, I talked about the Bible, and we talked about how the Bible is a story that we participate in, and that participation begins at home. Home is where we first become participants, where we learn to step into this grand narrative of Scripture and learn how to live it out. It's where Scripture becomes alive in our homes and in our life. So how do we minister in our homes? If this is our call, if this is mission field number one, priority number one, to minister to those we live with, how do we do that? We minister in word and in deed. First, word. Words are powerful. They carry a lot of weight. There's that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think we're, we all know that's not, that's not completely true. Like words, words can hurt us. Words are powerful. Scripture speaks of this so much in our awakened reading plan. We've been going through Proverbs, which speaks so much to the power of the tongue and of what our words can do. Our words, we can use them to encourage and build one another up. We can use our words to bless people. See, tell them where we see God in their character and the goodness that He has created them for. We can use our words to speak truth to people. We can use our words in prayer and intercession. We use our words for thanksgiving and showing appreciation. But also, words without actions are cheap. We also need to minister Indeed, I think about Paul's words, in, no, Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, he talks about, he's speaking to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And he basically tells them, hey, minister to them in your actions and it's very possible they will come around to Christ if you just show the love of Christ and how you act and deal with them and relate to them. We can minister without even saying a word. And by just serving people in love, we can minister by caring for others' needs, cherishing them, seeing them, and really just listening them, being slow to speak and quick to listen. To kind of end this teaching, I'm gonna take all of this. We've kind of been way up here and we've started to come down a little bit. And I'm gonna bring it down even further to like practical what you can do. I have this phrase came out earlier this week that we shape our homes and our homes shape us. And more specifically, we shape our relationships at home in certain ways. And our homes then shape and foster certain kinds of relationships. We can create rhythms and habits and ways of encountering each other at home that are gonna produce certain kinds of relationships based on many factors. And I just wanna speak into the environment, conversation, and rhythms and traditions. So first, environment. The environment that we actually dwell within can foster our relationships in different ways. The easy, obvious one to pick on is screens. If we have a TV on all the time and we're often more focused on watching whatever is on that screen than interacting and fostering relationship with the people we live with, that's going to produce a certain kind of relationship how we have, share meals with each other, whether we're, again, sitting on a couch watching TV as we share meals, or if we're sitting at the dinner table, looking each other in the eye and having conversation together, those are going to produce different kinds of relationships. The sound that we have, having background noise on of certain kind that distracts us from being present to the people around us, even down to having certain decor or pictures, whether that's scripture or whether that's pictures of our family that reminds us of certain memories and certain loved ones and what our home is built upon. Conversation. We can foster certain ways of conversing with the people we live with. Do you listen well? I don't always. It's confession. Do you listen well? Like when so you, someone that you live with speaks to you, does that go in one ear out the other or does it sink down into your person as something that you remember and hold on to and can speak to? Are you able to be vulnerable with the people that you're in relationship with and share deeply from the heart? Are you good at asking real questions to those people, not just, hey, how's it going? Good. We all know how to dodge that one. We know how to dodge that one, but getting real good specific questions in conversation with people. And then finally, just our rhythms and traditions that we have with the people we live with and with our family. Having rhythms in our life like a weekly Sabbath where as a family, we come together to rest and to worship God and to delight in his creation. Or whether if you don't have time for that or live with people where that's not a thing, even just having like Taco Tuesday, just where you share a meal together as a community and have deep conversation over it or Saturday breakfast or something. Or maybe it's a family game night or, or movie night where you have something that you are connecting and bonding over that facilitates a certain kind of relationship. So those three areas, environment, conversation, rhythms, and traditions. And I just ask, like, how are the relationships in your home being fostered? Are they being fostered in a way where we can really step into ministering to the people we live with. Before we hop to our reflection, I'm actually going to invite Taylor, my wife, up through Awaken. um, We have had different people come share about what we're talking about and how it has formed their walk and stuff. And so I asked Taylor if she would come share um, some of what she has experienced in our home of, yeah, take this mic, She's really excited about it. Hello? <laughs> hello?
1: Hello? Hello? All right. Um, I um, kind of wrote down a long list of things to try to keep things brief. Um, but I'll kind of hit the same things that he just did like our physical, our environment, some of our rhythms, and then some of the fruit that we've seen out of that. Um, So, actually, in Awaken of 2020, um, Gentry decided to, as part of his fast, um, fast from screens. And out of that whole month of not using screens, we live in a pretty small condo. And so, that means that I also could not really use screens very much because we were right there on top of each other. And so, um, there wasn't really... I couldn't have a TV on and it not affect him. And so I also went the entire month without it. And then after that, we like went back to normal routine and um, we realized just how like distracting and frustrating a TV was on all the time. Um, So we actually don't have a TV anymore. Um, We got rid of it. And that has been something that I think has been one of the biggest Changes that we have made that has brought us together um, as a married couple, just as people, as friends, um, and has allowed a lot more conversation with one another, um, and has um, eliminated noise and distraction for. like that was getting in the way of hearing God. Um, Before it was just TV on when we got home, TV off when we went to bed and it was just constant noise. And now we come home and the noise that we hear is our conversation or Marlo and playing and um, giggling and things like that, which is just so much sweeter and so much less stressful. and, oh, I'm not keeping this brief at all. I'm gonna run through this. Okay. <laughs> um, I knew that was gonna happen when I got up here. Um, another thing we've done is we, because we don't have a TV, our, our furniture is not facing anything that's distracting us and trying to entertain us. It's facing other furniture to facilitate conversation as well. Um, and then a couple of things that we do, like our rhythm and our routines, We have dinner at the table every night. Um, We talk. We ask specific questions on specific days. Like we have a Sabbath um, from Thursday night to Friday night. That's marked by dinner and ended by dinner. Um, And um, we bless Marlo and we pray and we light candles. And it um, it's it's really sweet. Kind of sounds dorky if you've not done it before. Um, But it it is an entire day of resting in the Lord together and. not being distracted by work and other responsibilities. Um, and has just been a really sweet way, especially with having Marlo in the home. Um, he works out of the house. I work in the house. And so I'm with Marlo a lot, but it's a full day that we're able to spend together and with the Lord. Um, and then just quickly, some fruit that we've seen from some of these changes. Um, we, um, We've started playing games together at night, which I think is kind of also dorky. Um, And he also will get out his guitar and we'll sing worship songs, which is also dorky. Um, But um, with that, Marlo is not growing up in a home where. His parents are constantly looking at a screen or distracted by work. And he's growing up in a home. Like we I go to ThriftSmart Smart like twice a week. And they play worship music at ThriftSmart. Smart. And every time we go, Marlo goes, dada sing, dada sing, because he associates worship music with our home. And I think that's really precious. I'll stop there because my phone turned off, so it's telling me to stop. But that's some of the things that we've seen. It's been really great. And we've heard the Lord more in our home. Um, than I could have imagined. And I imagine that that will only increase by more and more time with him. Um, But yeah, it's been really sweet.
0: Sweet. So uh, as we move into communion, we're going to have some reflection time. Um, Let me pull up my questions because I'm used to just turning around and reading them off the slide. Um, They're not in my notes. But we've got, you can pass out communion in every other seat here underneath the chair. Most of you guys know, pass those around. Uh, And then those sheets as well. And for the next like three minutes, I'm gonna invite you guys to just reflect and like dream, like dream, cast vision and ask yourself, you know, what is one way that you can begin fostering relationships in your home? And what is something practical you can do to help see your home as mission field number one? And so, yeah, we're gonna have some soft music playing give you guys three minutes, and then I'm going to lead us through communion. So you can hold your communion and hold on to it, and we'll go through that together in a minute. If you're still thinking, praying, reflecting, keep doing it. Maybe like two or three people want to share maybe some ideas that you guys have or something that you thought of uh, about how you can help foster relationships at home or something practical you can do to help see your home as mission field number one. Uh, Love to hear from a couple people. Who's going to break the ice? That's the question. Maya? Uh, anybody who knows me knows how hate like, doing dishes and I think that's what like, <laughs> so, i also hate um, doing dishes. And
2: I think instead of asking someone how I deserve them and putting that pressure on them, like, I know that's something, that's yeah. something that going to be someone's in. And like, that's something I that don't have to ask. Like, that's something I can just automatically consider and I'm like, going to minister in silence. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah, so just... Hopping in, doing the dishes, helping with household chores instead of leaving it to others or whatever, and just help alleviate and give space. Yeah, it's awesome. One or two more? Yeah, let's go. Yeah,
2: my roommate. Is, he's studying for the Epitaphs, and he uses, like, sticky notes for all those two views on, so I'll just, like, write, like, sticky notes.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's using what he's already doing of writing himself sticky notes to remember things, to add to that and just encourage him, that's awesome. Last chance, one more. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Trying not to speak. <laughs>
2: couch and just calmly and quietly just sit in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Especially for marriages, man, I think there's so much untapped potential. As we were talking in the teaching meeting on Thursday, man, there's so much on the table. And we reduce God in the home to such small, tiny little endeavor. I think if we would learn how to to sit and to intercede on behalf of each other, like, hey, let's just sit right here. No one's going to pray out loud. I'm just going to pray for you. For 10 minutes, God, is there anything you want to speak to them? Can I bless them, Lord? Is there any burden? Like, Hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? And and just to sit there, Jesus cares for our souls. And it's such a gift to have our spouse or roommates, but, but specifically with the spouse thing, like, man, the person I love is talking to the God I love on my behalf. That is a really powerful exchange right there. And there's so much soul blessing I, yeah. that, that's just there for the taking. So yeah. I, I
0: think our family should be really tapping into that prayer game. For sure. Yeah. Prayer, ministry with the people you live with, your spouse, roommates, whoever, beyond just like blessing the meal. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so for communion, just we take communion just as a in remembrance of Christ, who really is the, like, centerpiece of this entire picture we've been talking about, right? And so I just want to read over us some verses from Philippians chapter 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves, this mind being what we've been talking about this entire thing. He sums it up in, like, three sentences. But have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that's what communion is, remembrance of Jesus, that bread we take, remembering his body, that he came as Jesus of Nazareth, and he humbled himself, not counting equality with God, for our behalf, for us. And he gave that body to be broken on our behalf. And we drink the juice to remember his blood poured out on the cross for your behalf. Jesus, the head of the church, chief minister. And so you can take communion just with that in mind and remembrance.